Thanks for tuning into a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. It's our prayer that God would use this to stir your affections for Jesus, that the Spirit would work through his word being expounded as you listen to this message. As a reminder, podcasts and audio and video are great, but they aren't a replacement for the local church family. And so if you're part of Redemption Hill, a reminder to come and join us. If you're not in Washington, D.C., we would love for you to get connected to a local church where you can be loved and cared for. If you'd like to give to the ongoing ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can do so at our website, redemptionhilldc.org. Thanks for listening. Good evening, good evening. Uh, it is, uh, it's good to be with you guys tonight. Hey, my name is Phil. Uh, I am one of the worship leaders here at Redemption Hill, and uh, our, our normal, normal preacher, our pastor, Bill Rydell, is actually coming home right now from preaching at a wedding, uh, so you can pray for he and the, his family as they travel back. But uh, this evening, I get the, uh, the honor of opening the Word of God to us. And so if you will, if you have your Bible, we'll be in Psalm chapter 63, Psalm 63 tonight. And by the lack of the sound of page turning, I imagine most of you are on a phone where you're just going to look at the screen. So, cool. Uh, cool. Now, um, hey, just a real quick word of thanks. Um, I am super, so, so my job each week is to kind of write the, the liturgy and, and, and lead us in singing, and I love my job, but I'm also super thankful for an incredible team of musicians um, and worship leaders and vocalists, uh, and so the, the fact that they'll step in and do that is incredible. So I'm super thankful for them, and we're going to clap for them. Yeah. But yeah, with that, let's, uh, let's read uh, from Psalm 63. This is the Word of God. A Psalm of David. When he was in the wilderness of Judah, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, let's pray together. Father, this is your very word to us this evening. And, and like me, I imagine there are many who come into this room tonight with hearts that are, that are cold, that are possibly turned away from you. Father, we pray you'd kindle us. God, we pray you'd help us to burn with desire and passion for you and you alone. And so as we hear this word this evening, God, would you give us ears to listen, hearts to cherish, and wills to obey. Help us, Holy Spirit. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, October is upon us. And for me, October is a month of beginnings. It's truly the start of the holiday season, right? because Halloween is, you know, one of the most satisfying holidays. And as Halloween happens, it kind of ascends into the Christmas season, which is the most glorious. Uh, October is a month of beginnings. Uh, actual fall weather, which obviously I didn't write that this afternoon. Um, so sorry. 
But it, that fall weather begins to kind of diversify our wardrobes, right? So like even now I'm looking out and there's still a couple of you who are like, no, I'm wearing flannel today. I'm just going to do it. Uh, and so props to you. October is a month of beginnings. I think more importantly, the, the, the most uh, enjoyable beginning in my life in October is the beginning of hockey season of hockey season. It's that feel of a stick and worn gloves. It's the sharp nostril sting from gear left in a bag over the summer. And then there's the sound. This elegant stroking melody of steel gliding and biting into ice. I don't think there's anything quite like that sound. And nothing quite measures up to your first knowing step out upon the freshly resurfaced rink. See, if you ask hockey players, many hockey players will liken their time uh, on that 90-foot frozen sheet as nothing short of transcendental. It's like a type of worship. And this transcendental experience, there's no player that better embodied this experience of playing hockey quite like Wayne Gretzky. Gretzky is the great one. So here's some statistics for you guys, so buckle in. 2,857 career points. Now, for some of you, you're like, okay, cool. I don't know what that even means. So the next person has 900 less. Like nobody will ever catch him. He had 60 different regular season records, nine Hart Memorial trophies, which is the NHL MVP, and eight of those nine MVPs happened from 1980 to 1987 consecutively. No one could push him off of it. He lifted four Stanley Cups, which is the championship trophy. Shame on you if you didn't know that. He was Sports Illustrated's Hockey Player of the Century. Like, not decade, like century. The league mandatory Hall of Fame waiting period, it's like three years, it was just automatically waived. They were like, oh, you're done? You're hanging the skates up? Cool, you're in. 99, which is Gretzky's famous number, is the only number to be retired league-wide. He truly was the great one. But it was Gretzky's love of the game that fueled his greatness. He says that from ages 3 to 12, he would have spent anywhere from 8 to 10 hours each day on the ice. Every day, 8 to 10 hours. Do you do anything for 8 to 10 hours? Maybe look at your phone. Impressive. <laughs> Long after the neighbor kids would unlace their skates and walk home before the sunset, Wayne was still out on the rink. He would ditch his friends to go to the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto, and he would study the blade curvature of Hall of Famers. He, he would sit watching on his television, Hockey Night in Canada. He would sit with a, a pencil and a piece of cardboard, and he would literally just trace the trajectory of every shot with his hand over and over and over again. Gretzky was devoted with a pure love for the game. He said that during his days playing for the Edmonton Oilers, when he lived in Edmonton, that he had to live in a penthouse. He, he couldn't live street level. Because if he saw kids out in the street playing street hockey, he'd have to play with them. And then he would ruin himself for the game that night. He loved the game of hockey. Even his... Even his ability to play, when you watch him, he had this uncanny creativity in the open ice. Players would say that he would find, he, he saw a different game. He would find gaps and openings that nobody else could see. And all of this betrayed this abiding love and joy for the game that he excelled at. See, we give ourselves most to the things that we love deepest. And this evening, we find ourselves in a psalm with a man who loved someone so deeply that it affected all of his life. See, David here betrays an abiding love for God and the things of God all across the Psalms, but, but nowhere more prominently than Psalm 63. And so in this Psalm, we see in David a deep spirituality that's shaped by a view of God in three ways. And so we're going to spend our time tonight looking at those three ways that David was able to see God that helped shape his spirituality. So the first one is this. David saw God as the God of our longing. The God of our longing. 
it begins here with a, a, a note right before verse 1, which, by the way, um, the, the subtitle is actually part of the original manuscript. So it's actually the Word of God. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Where is David? He's in the wilderness again. It's like he spent all of his life out there. It's all he knew. Now, for all we know, he, he, we're not certain why he was in the wilderness at this point, but he was probably running from someone, whether that was his son whether that was Saul or whether that was the Philistines, David was running for his life, hiding in the wilderness. And it's out of this, uh, this barren place, this, this oppressed place, that David is able to see God as the God of his longing. And he begins this way. We see first that he uses this sensory language of desire. The sensory language of desire. We see it here in, in one he says, earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This is strong sensory language. Like all of us have thirsted. Some of us have fainted. And, and we know the power uh, of this affection that, that David is revealing here because we all have, in a sense, tasted of these senses. It reminds us, of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. David is applying this hunger and this thirst for God himself. An unparalleled longing. And Jesus says that he shall be satisfied. So we see this sensory language of desire in, in his thirsting and in his fainting. And, and we also see it in his beholding. Uh, you look at verse 2. He says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. I think many of us would agree that desire is often fueled by the eyes. David has seen something so good, so pure, so, so all-powerful that he can't help but desire God for who he is. And it, and it starts with his eyes as he beholds. Now this language here, uh, it's a lot, right? In fact, I think a lot of us would hesitate to even use this type of language. And why is that? It's because it's strange. It's, it's weird. Uh, as I was preparing this text, I was reminded of uh, an old monk that I had read about when I was like in high school. Uh, Brother Lawrence was a 17th century monk in France. And he was known for this deep intimacy with God. And specifically in, in prayer. And so Brother Lawrence would talk about his life with, with, in prayer with God. And it was like he never stopped. He was constantly in it. And uh, he, he, wrote, he didn't write a book. Someone else wrote a book about his life called Practicing the Power of the Presence of God. And in that book, we have countless letters from Brother Lawrence where he talks about uh, this relationship to God and this, this deep longing and desire for him. And it's kind of like... In the same way that David's kind of weird, Brother Lawrence is maybe a little weirder. And so uh, there's a quote in there when he, he's talking about being in this place of prayer, this sweetness of communion with the Lord, uh, which he called the bosom of God. Uh, and, and he says this, he says, if sometimes my thoughts wander from it, this, this type of praying, by necessity or infirmity, I am presently recalled by inward motions so charming and delicious. Do you hear that? Thoughts so charming and delicious that I am ashamed to mention them. I'm ashamed reading that quote. Like, it's kind of weird. Like, your skin kind of crawls a little bit. Like, can we say that about God? And yet here's Brother Lawrence illustrating, imitating this intimacy with God. And he uses this sensory language of desire. And I think it's a helpful thing for us as well. When we begin to get past all of the, the social niceties and we realize that our very being thirsts for God and who he is. That there is, a, there is a literal deliciousness to who God is and what he provides for us. David in the wilderness uses a sensory language of desire. But he also betrays another thing. And that's something that we're, we're going to call the, the I-thou relationship of worship. I-thou relationship of worship. I... I've been uh, leading worship, leading singing uh, in worship for probably like t 10 to 12 years. And uh, 
in that time, there's been like a lot of swings for like what types of songs we should sing. Like how should we relate to God when we're gathered together? And uh, early on, it was very, it was very, um, it was very clear that that our stream, our kind of theological camp was like, hey, we need more um, robust theological declarations about who God is and what he's done. We need to sing about God together, uh, which is beautiful. And so obviously like a lot of the old hymns uh, do that really well, do that really well. And so people were kind of swinging to like, all right, we're only going to sing hymns and we're going to like dust them off and rewrite them. And we sang a lot of hymns even tonight, which were incredible. We're going to sing more. And there was kind of this pendulum swing, and then it was like, hey, don't ever talk about me in our worship. Like, it's only God-centered, right? And I think if, if, if we just stay there, we miss out on a really powerful gift that God has given to us. Because David doesn't just stay focusing on God. He talks about him in relation to himself. And so David is betraying this experience of the presence of God. I love one commentator said that these are not the words of a stranger. Like you don't get the sense that David doesn't know this God whom he is talking to. There's an intimacy that David has cultivated. He, he even says in verse 1, Oh God, you are my God. And so this, this kind of I-thou divide that we tend to like pendulum swing in between, like are we God-centered, are we man-centered, uh, I don't think the Bible lets us swing to either side. It, it rests in the middle. See, if, if, we're, if we were to begin to speak like the Psalms in our worship, in our singing, in our praying, in our relating to one another, the reality is, is that God of course, this is God-centered, but God has related uh, and brought himself down to persons, to people. And so if our words don't reflect that, are we actually really engaging in worship? Does our theological astuteness keep us from communing with our God? I think that's a helpful and difficult question to answer. So David shows us this, this sensory language of intimacy with God. Of, of desiring, of longing for him. Uh, and, and then he kind of shows us this I-thou relationship, which we can learn from. And so I think this asks us even now, like, how do we apply this? Like, how do we cultivate this type of longing for God? Because if we're honest, I bet a lot of us probably don't experience it the way David does. And so three things on how we can do that, how to cultivate this longing. First is this, we are to know the wilderness. We are to know the wilderness. Uh, another, uh, another commentator s said it this way, that David's time spent out in the desert, all that time he was sharpening his appetite for God. Sharpening his appetite. I love that. See, many of us are so concerned with comfort, and, and, and I'm the first to confess that. But what we have here is we have David who experiences extreme discomfort by himself in the wilderness, literal thirst, and out of this, God, God, God blesses this and brings something beautiful. See, you and I, should, we should begin to know the wilderness, and some of you are in the wilderness now, and you might be ignoring that, pretending that, oh, well, you know, those who trust in God, they, 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 don't, they don't feel dejection, they don't feel um, depression or loneliness, but the reality is, is this is where David is. See, we're called to know the wilderness Again, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not the full, not the overflowing, not the wealthy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If we're going to cultivate a longing for God, we need to be open to knowing and experiencing the wilderness that is around us. That's the first way. Second is this, beholding God's power and glory. Beholding God's power and glory. If we're going to cultivate this longing for God, we need to place ourselves in the path of his presence. And so, congratulations. You've taken one step towards that. You're here. You're gathered with the people of God. God moves among his people as his word is shared, as we pray, as we confess, as we sing. Um, this, is a, this is a place for us to be in the path of God's presence. But there are other ways too. There are other ways too. And so the question is, is how are you spending your time 
beholding the power and the glory of God. Like, what are you doing with your time? Uh, it's no, you know, it's no uh, secret that we live in a very, very busy, busy culture. And for us, a really extremely busy city. Um, if I were to ask, well, probably any of you, hey, what are you doing two Fridays from now? You would all go, well, I got this, 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 and this, right? You're even thinking about it right now. You're thinking like, no, I really do have this, 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 and this. And, and that's a reality, right? That's a reality of where we are. But the danger is if we, if we don't make time to put ourselves in the path of God's power and glory, when are we going to behold it? When are we going to see it? Believer, how are you making time for God's presence in your life? This is one example. There are many others. So David, how we cultivate this longing is knowing the wilderness, beholding God's power and glory. And then, and then here's a third one. Uh, and this one's a little more nebulous. So if you thought I was kind of vague before, it's about to get a lot vaguer. Uh, we, to cultivate a longing for God, we need to allow our bodies to lead our hearts. We need to allow our bodies to lead our hearts. Each week we have this, this rhythm of gathered worship. Um, hopefully you've noticed it. Uh, we do a call to worship. We let God's word speak over us before we begin. We let God call us into this place. Uh, we, we sing and respond to who he is and his power in his creation. Uh, and then we, we hear his word again expressed over us as a congregation, as a people. And we, we have a time of confession and assurance we realize our own, our own sinfulness and the holiness of God. And we sing along those lines. Uh, and then, um, then, we, then we have a, a, a pastoral type prayer prayed over us in our city and our church. And then we get up and, and we're told to greet one another. And sometimes it kind of feels like, oh, we're just like, oh, here we go. We're doing this thing again. But really, like, that's for us to stand up and look around and realize, oh, there are people here. And these people are my brothers and sisters. And then, we, and then we sit and we listen to the word preached and we receive the word of God and, and, and hopefully we, we, we take it into our hearts and, and believe and obey. And so we, have, we kind of have these structured, what we call liturgy that happens every single week. Uh, and now it's maybe, maybe it's not as high as some of you guys have experienced if you've been a part of the Anglican church or the Catholic church. Um, it's not as, as high and as structured as some of their liturgies, but it, it's probably a lot higher than some of you Baptist kids who've grown up with uh, uh, types of liturgy, just maybe not expressed. And so when we do this, we're, we're literally trying to shape our affections around the gospel of God. And the same is true for our, our, our affections and our desires in, in our everyday lives. There's a power to liturgy. There's a power to rhythms. And as we enact these rhythms of desire, as we cry out to God, even when our hearts are cold and stony, as we place ourselves before others and confess our sin and our need, we begin to enact these rhythms of desires that, that, that begin to wake up, wake up those parts of our hearts that have felt dead. Now, here, here's my fear. Don't, don't hear me wrong. Our goal is not to prop up a dead ritual. Hey, just go through these motions. Um, this, this is a call to, to focused thoughtfulness. But if we're, if we're going to cultivate this longing for God, then we need to allow our bodies to, to, to lead our hearts. And sometimes that is fueling desire by any means necessary. By any means necessary. Now here's a little side thought. Part of the challenge of us cultivating this longing is... There is, a, there is a legitimate battle for our affections happening even now. We see all throughout the scriptures that, that God wants all of our affections. He wants all of our hearts. He wants us entirely. Deuteronomy 6, in the beginning, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. God wants all of us, not partial, partiality. He doesn't want half of us. He wants the entire thing. But the flip side, the inverse is true. The world around us wants our affections as well. The world around us wants our affections. There is an all-out fight going on for your heart, your soul, your might. In fact, many of you are potentially walking in now, still remembering something that was put in front of you 
that wanted to claim your affections, wanted to claim your allegiance. Some of you even now, your phones are buzzing in your pocket with notifications about what's going on in the world, begging you to look and and read and, and stay plugged in. And what happens when we do this is we begin to burn these pathways of affection in our hearts that's meant for God, and we place it on these other things. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not advocating uh, you becoming a hermit. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. That might, that might be your calling. We're, me- we're meant to live in the world, not of it. But so often, I think, we use that phrase to prop up a living of the world. Guys, there's a battle for our affections going on. God wants them all, and so does the world. And if we're going to effectively battle, we need to cultivate a longing for God in our hearts. See, we're a desiring people. We're meant to desire God above all things. And if we're not fighting to long for God, we will bend that longing towards something else. And we'll be tempted to find satisfaction elsewhere. See, we are meant to long for God, but we're also meant to find our satisfaction in Him. And so I told you we we're going to see three views of God. The first was that God is the God of our longing. The second is this, that God is the God of our satisfaction. The God of our satisfaction. In verse 5, he, 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 mimics, he, he mimics what he said earlier about his soul thirsting. He says, my soul will be satisfied. Like, I will find satisfaction in you, God, in nothing else. The reality is we live in an unsatisfied world, an unsatisfied city, right? Like we're, we are in a constant state of dissatisfaction. Even now you may feel it creeping over your heart. We're meant to serve this fulfillment machine, whether that's fulfillment in work, Fulfillment in food, fulfillment in relationships, fulfillment in sex, fulfillment in meaning. We're constantly given messages of pursue satisfaction here and here and here. And what's crazy is this is a, this is a powerfully human shaping experience. To be constantly told to, to, to find satisfaction here and not find it. I think if we're honest... And maybe we can't even see this. Our hearts, our hearts may begin to ask this question. Can I even be satisfied? Can I even find satisfaction? You and I were meant to be satisfied by God. And so this question is a potentially dangerous question, but a good one. Because it helps us to, to, to see where our hearts have been longing, have been finding satisfaction in the things of this world. And so once again, we know this about our world, but, but, but David uses this sensory language of satisfaction. Just in the same way that he used the sensory language of desire, he shows us this language of satisfaction. And how does he do it? He goes through our stomachs. He goes through our stomachs. Amen, I hear that. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, everything that we're told not to eat, right? Like, don't eat that. That's fat and rich. That's not good. David's saying, no, 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 no. This is what satisfaction in God is like. So much so that out of the satisfaction from this this food-like love of God, my mouth will praise with joyful lips. David, once again, is awakening this sensory language. See, many of us have had a great, actually all of us have had a great meal. We've all had a great meal. Uh, where you live, that's, you know, that's obvious. But it, it, it could be the 10-course meal that you, you get over at Rose's Luxury. Uh, or it could be that just awesome turkey sandwich that you ate after a long day of work. We've all had a good meal. And we know, we know the, the, the palpable, the tangible feeling of a good meal sitting on our stomachs. And David is drawing our minds to this. That satisfaction in God is, is a felt, a, a solid thing. That the spiritual, the spiritual reality of satisfaction has a weight that cannot be discounted or ignored. And hopefully we're reminded of the satisfaction every week as we come to uh, the table. As we think about the broken body of Christ, the shed blood of our Lord as we share that with our brothers and sisters, we're meant to remember our minds are drawn up to satisfaction that can only be found in God. So David helps kind of shape our view of this. 
And so the question is, how do we, how do we, begin, to, how do we begin to follow this pathway to satisfaction? How can we do that? How can we apply this? So I've got three things here. I've always got three points, right? That's how you're supposed to preach a sermon. That's what they say. Uh, the first is this. The pathway to satisfaction is starts by keeping watch. Keeping watch. We have David referencing the watches of the night in this psalm. Talking about the, the guards of a city who, who would stay up through the, the, the night to, to watch for enemies coming to overthrow it. And David uses this imagery to, to show us that the fight for satisfaction in God often has to go into the wee hours of the night. See, there's hard work to be done when it comes to finding satisfaction to God. This is not easy. Most of us are so used to this immediate gratification, we all are, that this type of work can be um, nauseating and, and it can be painful even. But David is calling us to the work of meditating on God, of finding satisfaction in him, even in those dark moments when all we know is quiet and stillness. The question for us, church, is how do we keep these watches? I know for me, most of my watches in the night are probably surrounded in anxiety or fear or loneliness. But David is giving us a new path saying that those, those hours spent in the night are meant to be for finding satisfaction in God alone. This also reminds us, us to the call to wakefulness. You think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's wrestling with uh, this, uh, this pivotal moment, not only in his life, but in the life of, of everything. And there you find him what? He tells his disciples, stay awake with me, pray with me, and they can't do it. And we see Jesus on his face, sweating blood, praying, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, thy will be done. Jesus modeled for us this, this keeping of the watch in the night, in his darkest moments. And we're reminded to stay awake. Romans 13 tells us the night is far gone, the day is at hand. 1 Thessalonians 5, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. There's a call for us here, church, to keep watch, and that will lead us to satisfaction in God. That's the first. Second is to remember God. See, David here, it, it, he's not just thinking nice things about God or nice things about his life. He's actually remembering a person. He's remembering who God is. And this is similar to his longing for God in that it's, it's directly to the heart of God, thinking about who God is. So if you and I have no knowledge of who God is, if we, if, if we don't know what the scriptures tell us about who God is, then it's really difficult for us to meditate upon him. See, David shows us this deep treasuring of God's personhood. It's not simply for what God provides for him, but who God is in his person. And so how do, our, how do our prayers mirror this, church? How do we remember God? This pathway to satisfaction is, involves keeping watch, remembering God, and then remembering his help as well. David doesn't stop at his personhood. He remembers his help, right? Verse 7, or verse 6, When I remember you upon my bed and meditate you, on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. David's remembering historical events here. Like he's actually remembering things that happened. And, and you can go through, through Samuel and Kings and you can see where, where David has been helped time and time again by the Lord, over and over again. And so he remembers the help of God in his dark moments. And it's not just, it's not just these events that happened to David, but a singular event as well. We see this language. He talks about being held in the shadow of your wings the shadow of the wings of God. Any good Israelite would have read this and they would have said, oh, he's talking about Deuteronomy. He's talking about the song of Moses. This is where we first see this, this image of God uh, keeping his people in the shadow of his wings. And he's referring to the singular event. See, God helped Israel in many ways, right? But the Exodus is the defining example, the covenant binding event. And David is looking back to this as well. 
He's thinking about how God is his help in everyday life, but he's also thinking about how God is the help of his people in the Exodus. And we're meant to say, okay, what does that mean for us? What event do you and I look to then? Do we look to the Exodus? No, we look to the, to the cross of Christ. We look to the cross of Christ. Colossians 1 Colossians 1 and Colossians 2, really. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We're meant to look to the cross. Colossians 2. He, he, he did this for us. He made us alive in Christ by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Church, if we are not people of the cross, then we are not remembering God rightly. And so our pathway to satisfaction, it, it involves keeping watch over our own hearts. But it also involves remembering God in his person and remembering Christ at the cross. This is how we find satisfaction. There's a final note on satis satisfaction here. David also shows us that there is a type of perseverance that comes through satisfaction. There's a persevering power of finding your fulfillment in God. We persevere because we know that God will satisfy. I love what it says in verse 8. He says, my soul clings to you. This kind of image of holding on, right? But he says in the back half, because your right hand upholds me. It's this, this dual interplay between us clinging and God holding. There's a perseverance that comes through satisfaction in God. When I was reading this text earlier in the week, I kind of saw that language, my soul clings to you. And it, and it reminded me um, of a saying that, that happens in, in Rachel's, my wife's family. Um, so her family has like all these sayings. I don't know, that might be your family, like, like passed down little like quips and, and things to say about anything, right? And my family just doesn't have that. And so I've kind of inherited all of hers. So it's like, doesn't make any sense when I go home to our family. Uh, but there's one that, that, that I'm reminded of all the time. And, uh, and, and it relates to this text, I promise. You're kind of like, where's he going? Um, but the, the phrase uh, happens when um, someone, let me say it this way. So Rachel's family is really affectionate, okay? Like she has some people in, in her family who are wonderful, and they just really want to like show you how much they love you by like kind of just touching you and, and hugging on you and, you know, real, real encouraging with their language. Oh, you know, we love you so much. And, and just kind of clinging on, right? And, uh, and so her grandfather, who's a, a brilliant man, um, he would always say this. He would say, don't be clinging vine. Don't be clinging vine as he peeled fingers off of his shoulder. And I love this image because, like, we always laugh about that, but now we have a three-year-old little girl who is the epitome of clinging vine. Like, you're going to see, if you see Rachel tonight, Jude's upstairs right now, like, she'll probably be, like, hanging onto her leg just kind of like this. And kind of like she gets her feet on your feet, and she kind of just tries to, like, she's just all on you, right? So you're kind of like, don't be a clinging vine, Okay. And so I love that image because, because here you have David crying out that my soul clings to you, God. And God is not impatient. And God is not annoyed by us. And while I would try to peel my beautiful three-year-old daughter off of my leg for the 17th time, God doesn't do that to us. God longs for us to cling to him because it's in our clinging that he upholds us. There's a perseverance through satisfaction that we can find, church. Now listen, there's some mystery to all of this, right? Communing with the eternal triune God is not a simple step-by-step -step process. And application for this is a bit open to interpretation, as you already have figured out. But these two, these two views of God lead us to a third view. And this third view helps us to put our, our feet on the ground. Because the reality is that you and I cannot rightly direct our longing and find satisfaction in God on our own. We can't do it. Our hearts are too fickle. They're too distracted. They're too tainted and stained by sin. And this is where verse 8 really helps us. Because as we cling to God, God upholds us. And it is in our helplessness that we find God to be near and fulfilling. So David shows us a spirituality that sees God as the God of our longing the God of our satisfaction, and finally, the God of our helplessness, the God of our helplessness.
Now, all throughout the Psalms, you kind of get the sense that David is always kind of complaining because he's always talking about his enemies. Do you have somebody in your life who's like that? Kind of a little bit crazy, like anytime you're with them, they're like, oh yeah, that guy doesn't, he doesn't like me. Oh, that person doesn't like me. I got all these enemies that are coming after me. And you're like, okay, chill, like chill out. See, that's David. He's always talking about his enemies all the time. And you kind of think that we're going to get, get away from it here, right? Like we're, we're eight verses in and we're like, oh, we're going to do this thing, no enemies. And it's like, nah, David's not done yet. See, David is always in his mind in the presence of his enemies. And these enemies, they're real. Like they're not imagined. It's not the crazy guy at the party who thinks that no one likes him. These are real enemies because you see how he talks about them. They can destroy him. They can do it. They do have the power of the sword. They are like jackals devouring the dead remains. And they do lie with a powerful influence. These enemies are real. And David knows their presence at all times. And because of this, because he speaks about his enemies, he knows his helplessness. Like he knows his neediness. David's a warrior. Like David has, David killed Goliath when nobody else would do it. And yet you see David cowering in in, in fear in a lot of ways because he knows his helplessness. And I think that helps him to enter into this spirituality of knowing God deeper than many of us do. And how do I know this? I know this because we see it in verse 11. David is not paralyzed by his fear. He's not paralyzed by his helplessness. He's honest about it. And then in verse 11, he says what? He says, the king shall rejoice in God. Who's David talking about? Sounds like he's talking about somebody else. No, he's gone third person on us. He's talking about himself. David is invoking the truth of who he is. He is the king of Israel. It doesn't matter if he's being chased out in the wilderness by his own son. It doesn't matter if the Philistines are coming after him. It doesn't matter if Saul is done with him, is trying to pin him to a wall. He knows that he is the true king of Israel. Nothing changes his status as the king. And in his helplessness, he's able to see this and invoke the title that God has given to him. Not because of anything he's done, because of God's goodness. Now this invoking the title of king, it, it doesn't, we're not meant to just go, oh yes, David is king, he's strong. <clears throat> as those who are in the new covenant, we're reminded of another king. We're reminded of another one who went before us into the wilderness who spent time being tempted by the devil, who spent time wandering and sojourning in a land that was rightfully his, one who didn't utter a word when he was led to the slaughter, one who laid down his life for his friends, reminded of Jesus, the true king. We see Jesus in the wilderness. We see the true Israel. We see the true king of God. See, the devil, he tempts Jesus, he tempts King Jesus because he knows it's only by tempting Jesus that he can overthrow God's plans for the world. But Jesus doesn't bend for a second. Jesus knows who he is. And because Jesus knows who he is, when we find ourselves in him, we know who we are. We remember in Romans 8, he says, for you did not receive the spirit of, listen to this church, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Church, if Jesus is reigning as the true king of God and we are in him, we are co-heirs with Christ. So helplessness is not a bad place to start. It leads us to a right understanding of who we are in relation to God. And ultimately, it leads to our glorification. How do we apply this? How do we we bring this realization of God being the God of our helplessness? I think there are three ways and then we'll kind of wrap up. The first is this. In order for us to cultivate this this understanding, this understanding, this knowledge of God being the God of our helplessness, we need to acknowledge our current state of weakness. 
Like, we need to be okay with saying we're weak. We live in a, in, in a world, in a city, where power is worshipped and idols are set up who, who, who are strong. And yet we're called to be meek. And we're called to humility. And we're called to cast off those idols of power. And so if we're not honest about our own helplessness, we can't truly begin to see who God is. And so if you're in here tonight and you're feeling pretty strong, it's only a matter of time before you know your weakness. And God is calling us to come to him in helplessness. See, the world is scary. Those notifications you're getting on your phone right now, that stuff's real. Like, stuff is happening in, in our country today. And it's not fake. It's not, it's, not, uh, it's not something to just write off and say, oh, well, these are, these are real things. We have enemies. We have real ones. And it's this, it's this realization that helps us to begin renouncing all of our other loves and our other affections, right? Because you think about it, we have, we have a reason to fear. Like we have enemies that would come and, and, and wipe away all of these loves and these satisfactions that we find in other things, Right? If our satisfaction, our longings in life, if, if it's in comfort, if it's in relationship, status, wealth, those things can be taken away in an instant because we have real enemies. And so acknowledging our helplessness lets us see that we have enemies who would sweep away all of these other affections and loves. This is a helpful place, church. How do we begin seeing God in our helplessness? We acknowledge our current state and then we, and then we cry out in faith to a good father. Romans 8 is true. We are in Christ. We are children of God. Co-heirs with Christ. And there is great health and there is great formative power in us crying out, Abba, Father, in our own helplessness. Like we're meant, we're meant, we're meant to come before him crying out, being needy. Some of you don't like that state. That's, that's what we're called to. We're called to be needy. And as we cry out to our Abba Father, we communicate our, our longing for him. And we communicate our, our, our satisfaction in him. And we communicate our trust in him. And so church, don't be, don't be afraid of crying out to him. Um, hey, every week we have, after, uh, right after we kind of break for communion, which is a weird way to say that, sorry. Uh, as we go to communion, uh, there's, always, there's always folks that we send to the side here uh, to pray for you. You may, you may miss that each week. And that is, that's a real tangible, helpful way for us to respond in faith at times. And so I want to say this, like, if you're experiencing a coldness, a deadness towards God, and you want somebody just to pray for you, like, go over there. Like, the church of God is meant to pray for one another. And like, if you're not willing to communicate that helplessness, then you're, you're beginning to stunt some of your, your spiritual growth. So don't be afraid to cry out, Abba, Father, even with people that love you, brothers and sisters. And so as we, as we think about our helplessness, we're, we're called to acknowledge our current state, to cry out in faith, and finally to cherish the love of the Father. See, we will always love imperfectly, church. This side of, of eternity, we will love imperfectly. Our hearts are too broken, too fragile. And what's beautiful about that is we know that in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so it's in our helplessness that we notice first and foremost the all-pervasive love of God in Christ. Church, if we're to pursue an abiding spirituality, we're meant to long for God to find satisfaction in him and to see our helplessness. Now, I don't, I don't remember many things in my life. <clears throat> I, have a, I have a real bad long-term memory, but I do remember my first ever goal that I scored. See, I was a very, very small winger, somewhere around 10 years old, skating in my first roller hockey league, 
And I, I remember the Texas heat was just permeating off of the blacktop as I furiously skated my way out to center ice. And our defense had, had just broken up uh, the opposing team rushing into our zone uh, when the orange rollerball that we played with shot out into the open space in front of me. And I was there. And I caught it. And I was gently cradling the turnover on my stick blade back and forth. And I knew I was all alone. And as the opposing goalie registered that I was on a breakaway, he edged just a, just a little to the outside of the goal crease in front of him trying to minimize any of my shot angles. I remember the warm blast of August heat rushing through my helmet as I churned my legs towards the goal. And before I knew it, I had reached the goal crease, lost my footing, and spiraled into the ground as the goalie dove to block the trickling ball that I'd left behind. I lay on the ground. And as I was laying there, I heard the sound of our bench erupting into cheers. And it was there, resting gently against the twine of the net before me, that I saw the orange ball. I had scored my first goal. See, my love for the game of hockey didn't just happen that day. It had been cultivated. It had been developed. It had been cherished. But it was in that moment that I scored my first goal that I knew that I did love this game. Now, hockey's just a game. But the, but, but the spiritual relationship that God calls us into is modeled by a spirituality of longing of satisfaction, and of helplessness. And so church, may we cultivate a life well-lived in love for God as we experience and reflect the love that he has for us. In Christ, God loves you. Believe that today. Let's pray together. Father, we are often too slow to recognize your love for us in Christ. And so I pray that even now, all across this room, that you would infuse in us uh, a deep longing for you, God. God, that you would give us a, a, a tangible satisfaction in your gospel. God, that we would know a helplessness that leads us to deep trust and faith. God, none of this happens without you. And so we, we confess even now our arrogance and our pride. And we ask for, for uh, insurmountable levels of grace. God, help turn our affections toward you. That we might live a full life of faith in your son, Jesus. And it's through the Holy Spirit and by the name of your son Jesus that we pray. Amen.